Contented Media presents Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto, an original podcast series with Mark Hunter and Arthur Van Pelt. Hello and welcome to Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto, the podcast that wakes up on a cold, dark January morning, throws off the covers and does a hundred press-ups before its day even begins. My name is Mark Hunter, cryptocurrency writer and puppet master of the crypto exchange cartel, and with me, as always, is the man who brightens up any dark winter's morning with his torch of truth, it's Arthur Van Pelt. Arthur, it's a bit late, but Happy New Year! Yeah, Happy New Year to you, Mark. And uh, yeah, it's a belated one, but from the same good heart as always. Shall we see if Craig Wright has started the year in his usual nonsensical fashion? Uh, I don't think we um, have to wait long for that. (laughs) Certainly not. Let's crack on. Yep. We start this month, and indeed this year, where we start every month. Firmly ensconced in Lawsuit Corner, racing through the law library and trying to untangle the mess of lies, half-truths and legal mumbo-jumbo that Craig Wright forces us to untangle. We start with Wright's case against Peter McCormack, which was the subject of our December bonus episode following a hearing over four issues that persisted after the verdict was handed down. A crucial part of that hearing was the possible contempt of court charge against Wright, which arose not because of his false case, but instead because of an alleged dual breach of embargo. Here's an excerpt from our bonus episode on the matter. So on to the first of our four issues, the embargo. On July 26th, Justice Chamberlain issued his draft verdict, which carried a warning that it was confidential to the parties and their legal representatives, and accordingly, neither the draft itself nor its substance may be disclosed to any other person or used in the public domain. So what did Craig Wright do? He went straight to his Slack group and said, If a person would spend four million to receive a dollar plus and two million costs, so the other side is bankrupt, what would you think? I.e., the only thing that matters is crushing other side. Well, I would spend four million to make an enemy pay. Ontier was informed of this message by email, and they in turn informed Justice Chamberlain and McCormack's team, with Ontier incredibly trying to spin Wright's message as an attempt to encourage debate amongst the members of the Slack channel and to give an indication of Wright's dogged approach to his opponents in the digital assets sphere generally. Justice Chamberlain also reported how Wright fucked up again when he replied to an email with the draft verdict attached and copied in five people who weren't allowed to see it. This was supposed to be in Wright's defence, but it just made him look as hilariously incompetent as we know he is. On the day of the hearing, which took place on the 12th of this month, Wright arrived in court with the usual entourage of lawyers, looking, in the words of one observer, annoyed. Presumably this was because, as he said in the past, legal issues like this, which he started, detract from his time spent developing, or, more likely, making incorrect statements about Bitcoin and blocking people on Twitter. Wright's legal team started his defence by arguing that, in their opinion, the issue wasn't that serious and didn't warrant all this hullabaloo. Justice Nicklin, presiding, shut this down, saying that the court agreed with McCormack's team that breaches of court embargoes are serious and should be treated as a contempt of court. Wright had also not been personally served with the summons, they said, and added that he was tagging along in order to assist the court. How nice of him. Arthur, there was also an issue with something Ontier had said in a previous report, wasn't there? 
Yes, there was, although uh, we cannot fully grasp what happened there because we don't have the documentation at hand, huh? that uh, Ontio report that was referenced to. But what we do know was mentioned uh, in a very recent, uh, that was on January the 13th, article of the Law Gazette in the UK. So let me quote from that uh, article. Previously, Craig Wright's barrister Callas challenged the judge's assumption that the underlying facts of the apparent leak had been essentially admitted in a report by Wright's solicitors, specialist London firm Ontier. Callas said he was not able to concede any admissions on the facts. That stance was rather contrary to the apology offered in the Ontier report, Judge Nicklin said. Well, Mark, the least that we can say here is that uh, the content judge is well aware of what is going on and is very critical towards uh, Craig's legal camp. When it came to how the case should be handled, Wright's team pushed for the inclusion of the Attorney General in the case. However, Judge Nicklin wasn't having any of this, saying, My view at the moment is, it is absolutely straightforward. The underlying grounds have, for all practical purposes, been admitted by the defendant. The question is whether these matters amount to contempt. I do not see the necessity to involve the Attorney General. Wright was then reminded that he had actually admitted to sending the Slack post and the email in question, and so should he admit the charge of breach of embargo, he would receive a lighter sentence than if he were to deny it and then be found guilty. Wright, either because he genuinely thinks he's not guilty or because he doesn't want to sully his claim that he's never been found guilty of any crime, demanded a special hearing to plead his case, where, his legal team said, they would introduce oral evidence to handle the quite complex matters of admissibility. Arthur, Wright is turning this into a much bigger deal than it needs to be, and I'm not really sure what witnesses he can call on that would help him get out of something like this. I mean, what do you think's in his mind here? I have no idea either, Mark. Yeah, I can try to make a guess with the risk that it is uh, far off what is going to happen in April uh, during the multi-day contempt hearing. But maybe Craig Wright will try to bring in the autism defense or a recording of a meeting between Craig and his counsel. But that is probably privileged. So yeah, I can only guess. Basically, I have no idea. The upshot of all this is that there will be a two to three day hearing where the email and the Slack post, and presumably the intent behind them, will be discussed, with right questions directly by Judge Nicklin over the matter. As we have mentioned before, there have been several cases in British law in recent years where court embargoes have been broken, and in each case the result was a fine and a slap on the wrist. Unless the legal system has had enough and wants to make an example of right, this is the likely fate that awaits him if he were to be found guilty. There still remains the possibility that McCormack will chase a charge of perjury against Wright for the false case or take civil action against him to recoup any costs, although it would be understandable if he wants to just put the entire episode behind him. We also got an update this month in the Lynn Wright vs Ira Kleiman lawsuit, which was the subject of our bonus episode this month. In the last few weeks, we've had three motions put forward regarding this case, all of which were ruled on this month. The first was regarding the continuation of the case itself. Last month, Lynn Wright requested that the stay on the case, which was put in place on December 14th, 2020, at the request of Ira Kleiman, so he could focus on his case against Craig Wright, be lifted. Her argument was that the case was over, given that the ruling was handed down in December 2021. This neatly sidestepped the belief of her own husband that if an appeal is being heard, which it is, then the case isn't officially over. 
Second, Ramona Ang, Wright's current wife, had also filed a motion which was based around a demand of payment for testimony for the Kleiman versus Wright case. Ang claimed that a payment of over £117,000 was due to her, given that Ira Kleiman had promised to bear costs of discovery, which Ang said included her testimony. Personally, I'm not sure why this claim made it into the Lynn Wright case, but I'm sure there's a very good reason. The ruling also addressed the efforts of both Lynn Wright and Ramona Ang to disqualify Roche Friedman from the case following the infamous recordings of Roche making a tit of himself by boasting about how he wanted to bring down Craig Wright as well as other inadvisable admissions last year. Roche quit the firm, which has now been renamed Friedman Norman Friedland LLP, but both women, and Wright himself in his case against Ira Kleiman, are seeking to get Roche's former company kicked from all three cases. This was despite, as we said at the time, the tapes containing nothing of any consequence to any of the trials in question, and in fact, no legal misdemeanours whatsoever. Arthur, what did Judge Johnson have to say about these three efforts? Oh, that was beautiful. It was a triple times uh, denied. Hmm. As Calvin Air used to say, Craig will won. Yeah, he really said won. (laughs) (laughs) All his cases, but (laughs) no, maybe in another universe, but... Now, in, in, in summary, Lynn Wright's motion was denied uh, because, as you say, there is still an appeal of uh, Ira Kleiman against Craig Wright going on. Ramona Ang's motion was dismissed because, as the judge uh, said, it would be premature and, and imprudent given the involvement of a uh, UK court. And removing the Friedman councils was considered irrelevant or moot by the judge because Kyle Roche had hardly uh, anything to do with the Climate versus Wright case. He wasn't involved with the case anyway anymore. And it was determined elsewhere in other cases that the Friedman Council should not be uh, kicked out. So basically, they had no case uh, trying the letter again in this case. So overall, that was three motions made by Lynn Wright and Ramona Ang and three denials. Clearly, legal performance is the thing that binds them all together. Talking about Kleiman versus Wright, we've had lots of updates this month on this one. Arthur, the first filing this month was in reference to the $143 million that Craig Wright owes and said he was going to pay last year. What are the details on this one? Well, we finally see Ira Kleiman's counsel, uh, Friedman uh, and his team, uh, making some moves to try to collect uh, the $143 million that was uh, awarded to W&K, the company that is controlled by Ira Kleiman, when they won the lawsuit uh, against Craig Wright. Well, that is already a year ago. Actually, it's uh, much more, because as some $1,000 per day is added in post-judgment interest, but everyone remembers the $143 million, so we mention that amount uh, all the time. And why they took almost a full year to request a Form 1.977, on which Craig Wright has to list all his uh, current assets, with help from a judge. I don't know, Mark. Uh, I would probably have requested uh, such a form much earlier, but we don't know what wheelings and dealings have happened uh, in the background meanwhile. So yeah, but fact is, in, in November 2022, they asked uh, Craig directly for this form, and he refused to, to cooperate. Well, what's new? So now Ira Kleiman is asking for an order from the judges in the Kleiman versus Wright case, Bloom and Reinhardt, to make Craig comply with the Form uh, 1.977 uh, request. CoinGeek didn't cover the demand, probably because it doesn't want to remind its readers that Wright actually owes the money, while it was also ignored by Wright and Calvin Eyre, the latter of whom, let's not forget, will probably be the one who ends up writing the cheque. 
Wright's team responded four days later to confirm that it would give a full reply within the set time frame and, bang on time with the findings made by Lynn and Ramona, renewed its appeal on for the already denied motion to have Kyle Roche and Roche Friedman kicked from the case. Ira Kleiman's team responded to point out that Roche was no longer with the firm and that the Court of Appeal had already rejected an identical request from Wright in this case. To further illustrate their argument, they also filed a motion to have Kyle Roche withdrawn from Ira Kleiman's team, even though he no longer worked for them. This was ruled on the same day by Judge Bloom, who referred the case to our old friend Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt, which Craig Wright will no doubt be thrilled to hear. The argument against Wright filling out a form was filed on January 20th, and what a filing it was. It began. This motion is ill-founded and should be denied for a number of reasons. A motion to compel cannot be filed regarding an act a court hasn't ordered performed. But even if that were not so, this motion would require denial. Ira Kleiman lacks standing to file any purported motions on W&K's behalf. His late brother, and his brother's estate, never had more than one-third ownership interest in W&K, let alone the 51% ownership interest required to speak for W&K on this motion, in this action, or anywhere else. Arthur, this filing will be read and ruled on by Judge Bloom. What did she have to say about the evidence used in this attempt back in 2019? Oh yeah, that was one of those beautiful rulings that we saw in the Climate versus Right uh, case, as Judge uh, Beth Bloom completely destroyed Craig's false antics uh, uh, back in May uh, 2019. She said, The defendant has failed to present any credible evidence showing that any of the parties he suggests are member of WNK. And you might remember, Mark, that uh, those parties were Lynn Wright, Uyen Win, and the Australian company Coinex. And she also said, in that ruling, this is not the first time that the defendant has made certain representations regarding the membership of WNK. Indeed, the court notes that the defendant has made several conflicting statements regarding even his own ownership of WNK. Okay, and has Craig Wright produced any further evidence to back up his claim of this multi-party ownership since then? No, never. So, <laughs> no, no, really, it baffles me why Craig's counsel, Rivero Mestro, is even trying this nonsense. It's totally beyond me why they might think that Judge Bloom has forgotten about this May 2019 order. In its argument, Wright's legal team again used the theory that because the ownership of W&K is the subject of a legal battle, Craig Wright doesn't have to pay. This, of course, is also the argument propounded by Norwegian legal expert Calvin Eyre. Unfortunately, however, it is factually incorrect. Craig Wright owes the money to W&K, not any individual, and the money can, if it must, sit there until the owner is legally established. The filing included the same evidence that Wright tried to use in the previous motion, evidence that was all shot down by Judge Bloom three and a half years ago, and Arthur, I very much doubt she's going to be more impressed with it this time round, is she? No, that's a fair assumption, Mark. Again, it, it boggles the mind why these people, and I mean, we can expect anything from Craig Wright. So, I mean, mostly his counsel think that they can get away with this. Wright's legal team even tried to bring in Kyle Roche's indiscretions as evidence of why Wright shouldn't have to pay, despite the fact that they are as related to each other as a beef sandwich and a production of Macbeth. Arthur, anyone who has read through this filing knows it's totally disingenuous and it's almost certain to fail. Is there anything more insidious in play here than them just wanting to protect their client? I'm repeating it again, Mark. I have a hard time <laughs> grasping what they are trying here. 
I mean, no professional counsel should allow Craig's ever-failing antics to enter a courtroom. They should protect their client, actually, uh, by not doing this. So by doing this, it's not protection for Craig. It's actually bringing him down. So, yeah, it, it, it almost appears as if Rivero Mestra is trying to squeeze every penny out of Craig by allowing uh, those uh, ever-failing and doomed-to-fail narratives. And they're putting their uh, own actions also up for legal scrutiny, if you ask me. Uh, and mm -hmm. the, we don't know what's going to happen, of course, but I cannot in, uh, imagine that Beth Bloom will not say something about a council that is trying the same trick twice while it already failed for the first time. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah, and I think it's also worth mentioning here that Wright claims to have offered Ira Kleiman, or WK billions of dollars in Bitcoin that we know he didn't have to settle the case before it got to court, calling Ira a greedy little man last year for not accepting his deal. But Arthur, this situation we have now is proof that if Ira had agreed to that deal, even if the Bitcoin was there, he still wouldn't have had the money because Craig would have still have pulled this stunt when they tried to collect, wouldn't he? Yeah, of course, no doubt. Among the exhibits was an interesting little nugget that was picked up by Phil Todman on Twitter. He noted that Ira Kleiman's lawyers had subpoenaed Wright's legal team, Rivero Mestre, to find out who was paying them for their services for Wright's plentiful other lawsuits if he supposedly didn't have the money to pay the outstanding $143 million to W&K. Arthur, if this subpoena is successful, what do you think it would reveal? Well, potentially... And there is a mighty good chance that this is going to happen. We will learn about the names of the individuals and entities that are paying the legal bills uh, of Craig Wright. But we all know that is on behalf of Kelvin Air, of course. Mm -hmm. But, and this is for me an interesting aspect with this uh, subpoena. The moment I noticed that they subpoenaed Craig's counsel huh, for all the sources of payments in all Craig's court dealings, where Rivero Mestre is involved, the first thing that crossed my mind was RICO. Hmm. Uh, RICO, as you might know, is an, uh, it's an act, uh, the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. And the RICO Act, as they state in the act itself, seeks to strengthen the legal tools in evidence gathering by establishing new panel prohibitions and providing enhanced sanctions and new remedies for dealing with the unlawful activities of those engaged in, here you go, organized crime. Hmm. And I was not alone with this thought because later I came across Phil Todman. I think he is a lawyer. He said in one of his tweets, I'm hoping this and other recent developments will force the federal court to tackle this issue and punish RICO style litigation fraud. So what we might see develop here, Mark, is potential evidence of organized crime. And this might explain why it took so long for Team Fell Friedman to prepare all the actions that we see happening lately. Again, only guessing because we don't know what is happening in the background, of course. Mm. But I'm getting very curious. Uh, I will follow this uh, very closely, believe me. I mean, that's a, a big claim, but that would be spectacular. Yeah, yes and no, Mark. If you look at how the whole setup was, I mean, Craig created many fake and empty companies he uh, did bookkeeping fraud to keep the scam alive for as long as it lasted then he uh, lured Kelvin Air into a bailout 
And they went on in London with Enchain uh, and related companies to get uh, him out of trouble in Australia. So what happens is that Kelvin Air got involved with his money and presuming that he is maybe not at that moment, but maybe uh, quickly after that, he became aware of the scam going on and he is supporting it, then it uh, starts already uh, smelling like organized crime to keep uh, the world um, yeah, busy with, an, uh, with the Satoshi claim and everything financially related to that, of course. On the day of recording, as always, we got a very interesting development when Ira Kleiman wrote to the court personally, pointing out several inconsistencies that his counsel failed to pick up on or chose not to pursue during the trial. Unfortunately, this highly unusual filing came too late for us to include in this episode, but it will be examined in February's episode, by which time we will also likely have a response from Judge Reinhardt, to whom it was addressed. On the subject of money, we got a lovely little specimen of utter unself-awareness from our hero this month, who was in conversation with someone on Twitter who said that, despite his impassioned stance on Bitcoin, at least MicroStrategy CEO Michael Saylor puts his money where his mouth is. Wright replied to say, no, he risks other people's money. This is sensationally rich, considering that Wright has not put a penny towards any of his professional endeavours since 2015. Calvin Air has footed the bill for everything, from Wright's bailout based on the fake one fix wallet in 2015, to the bevy of lawsuits since 2019, and the ones to come based on the imminent patent wars and Wright's exchange battle. Pot calling the kettle black doesn't come close to covering it. Wright was also on hand this month to rebuff claims that the evidence he provided for the Hothenort trial was, in fact, not provided by him. Wright entered a Twitter discussion over the evidence analysed by KPMG in their report last year, which found numerous glaring inconsistencies with Wright's claims to have created Bitcoin, to say that there was nothing to debunk. Basically, these guys take information that was sent into court from a variety of sources, including Ira Kleiman, and say that it's all mine. Arthur, we've been through this before, but just for the sake of accuracy, how much of the evidence analysed by KPMG came from other sources, including Ira Kleiman, and how much came from Craig Wright himself? <laughs> this is again a shameless and blatant lie of Craig Wright, Mark. Hmm. We know from Craig's counsel, Wittborg Rhein, which was replaced just before the trial in Norway last year, uh, that, and I quote from their uh, direct information, a number of documents have been collected from Wright in connection with lawsuits pending in other jurisdictions. Of relevance to this dispute, 71 documents are presented which substantiate that Craig Wright is Satoshi Nakamoto. So I repeat, have been collected from Wright. Not from Ira Kleiman, not from anybody else, but from Wright and Wright alone. And please let that be the end of it. Yep. Outside of Lawsuit Corner, we start this year with something that happened at the end of last year, or rather, failed to happen. In October 2022, Christian Agger Hansen, the man who will lead BSV to the Promised Land, went on a bit of a rant about Satoshi Nakamoto. Agger Hansen opined that there was only one person who could fit the bill, the multifaceted genius Craig Wright. To back up his theory, Agger Hansen promised a report on the identity of Satoshi Nakamoto, saying... I will use all my research abilities to find out the truth about Satoshi. 
I will research all aspects and stakeholders in this fascinating saga. My verdict and report will be filed 2359-2022 in the Year of the Tiger. When asked about this confusing deadline, Aga Hansen replied that his research would be published 31st 12, 2022. Naturally, us old sceptics weren't exactly convinced by the idea of a 100% partisan stakeholder publishing unbiased research, but there was nothing we could do but wait patiently for the end of the year and see what arrived. New Year's Eve came and went, and Arthur, what did we get? I remain silent, and that's because we got nothing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's how it went. Because Mr. Eger Hansen showed himself a worthy Craig Wright uh, supporter, Mark. Yeah. Just like his hero has done many times, Kristen didn't come through on his promise. We got no report. Nothing. Aga Hansen was pressed on this missing report as soon as January 4th, and here was his response. It's finished, but not publicly available. But the result, it's obvious. Arthur, what was your take on this response, <laughs> need I ask? Well, I couldn't help understanding it as... It's obvious that Craig is not Satoshi, so we couldn't make it publicly available. <laughs> Otherwise, our scam would immediately fall apart. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to agree with that. I'd like to agree, but sadly, I can't. Nay, it's obvious that um, Kristen, uh, uh, of course, he's still on the hand of, uh, of uh, Craig Wright. And, but for some reason, they, they, they keep it behind. No idea why. Arga Hansen's response was, naturally, pulled apart by everyone who saw the ruse for what it was, with even the usual BSV cheerleaders deciding that they weren't willing or able to try and turn this into a positive. The entire episode is reminiscent of the 2016 signing sessions and their fallout, with Wright's proponents still using the various private signings for John Matonis, Gavin Andresen and the rest as evidence that he has signed the addresses in the earliest Bitcoin blocks, despite his utter refusal to do it in public. Once again, we're promised proof and instead given a request to just believe. Aga Hansen has not referenced the report once since then, and we can safely assume that this is going to be nothing more than another nugget to add to the collection of missed deadlines and unfulfilled promises from those associated with BSV. One report of sorts he did give us, however, was regarding the prowess of BSV itself, only it came in one of those crappy charts people were producing back in 2017 by the bucket load to show why their favourite shitcoin was better than more illustrious competition. Aga Hansen introduced this little chart by saying, Do I need to say more? The reason I joined the BSV social impact movement. Enchain Global are the only relevant technology provider that can transform your business from Web 2 to Web 3 and help your business create real impact solutions. Arthur, there is so much to unpack here. Firstly, what's the BSV social impact movement? Yeah, you tell me. I think it's just another meaningless uh, marketing term from the Lightning Sharks uh, drawing board to try create a virtual umbrella under which the BSV fans will feel comfortable again for a while. It's just nonsense, isn't it? It's, it's meaningless. Yeah, it is. So looking at the chart then, which Aga Hansen has helpfully pinned to his Twitter feed if you haven't seen it yet, there is plenty to go through. It's in three columns with three coins listed. Ethereum, his former love Algorand, which, as we predicted when he first joined Enchain, he has ditched quicker than Leonardo DiCaprio when his girlfriend's turned 25. And, of course, BSV. 
Now, Arthur, I'm going to ask you to put aside any prejudices you may or may not have for certain coins here and talk from a purely factual basis for a few minutes. Can you manage that? It's going to be hard, Mark, but I'll give it a try. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. We'll do our best. So, we start with consensus protocol, which Aga Hansen says for Ethereum is proof of work, despite the fact it moved to proof of stake last September. Not the greatest start there, and it gives you an idea of what's to come. Under governance, he says that BSVs is set in stone compared to the Ethereum Foundation and the Algorand Governors Group. Arthur, what on earth does this mean, and who actually are the BSV governors? Well, Agar Hansen says set in stone, so he probably means that BSV has no governance. Satoshi once stated that the core design is set in stone, which is the white paper, and not typically the protocol, of course. That means the protocol rules, they are not set in stone. So that's where we see BSV drift away from uh, Satoshi's design (laughs) again. (laughs) On the other hand, even BSV is not set in stone. They still produce protocol changes every now and then. And the most controversial one was late 2022. That's when they implemented the final code for freezing and seizing and reassigning tokens on their blockchain. And it was fully governed by Craig Wright's delusional idea that he should get back the tokens on a few whale addresses, one fix being one of them. And mark my words, Mark, when Craig has it his way, he will also try grabbing the Satoshi stash on uh, on BSV. Mm -hmm. Next, we come to the nitty gritty, the numbers. Unfortunately, things don't start too promisingly for our intrepid researcher. He's put two categories for transactions per second, qualitative and quantitative. For Ethereum's qualitative TPS, he said simply low, while both Algorand and BSV are high. Arthur, this is a completely subjective rating he's given these blockchains. He really thinks he's providing some kind of winning analysis here, doesn't he? Yeah, but... It's probably somewhat fair that he is doing that because during the lab tests with uh, Steve Shatters, they showed 50,000 transactions per second and 100,000 transactions per second has been rumored uh, quickly after that. And Craig Wright announced that within month, so let's say by April this year, the latest, they will show 1 million transactions per second in their live environment. But I'm very doubtful about that one, uh, as Craig's promises hardly, if ever, come through. <laughs> but the 50,000 transactions per second number is uh, good enough for me to allow Kristen uh, dropping a high in that section for BSV. However, I can't judge uh, the Ethereum and Algorand numbers, uh, to be honest, because I'm not keeping track of all these uh, altcoins and their uh, performances uh, everywhere. Now, underneath this, he lists some numbers, but not actual present-day numbers, rather a theoretical number of transactions per second, presumably in a perfect test environment. For Algorand, he's put 46,000, which they put in their literature as their official target, which seems to be the sole source for Hansen's thorough research, by the way. Although this can't be right, because for Ethereum, he's put 15, which is already lower than it's doing today, and is a far cry from the 1 million transactions per second Ethereum says in its literature it will be able to manage in the future. As we all know, BSV has no limits in what it will achieve, and will grow to the speed where your transaction is complete before you've even typed in the numbers. Arthur, either this was written before Ethereum changed to proof of stake, which was four months ago now, or he is willfully manipulating his data to fit his narrative. Which one do you think it is? 
<laughs> yeah, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, the BSV camp has a reputation of being manipulative, if not outright fraudulent with the numbers and other facts. From Craig Wright having uh, more money as the country of Rwanda, to uh, creating uh, short-lived circle jerks between uh, Kelvin Air-owned entities, to pump uh, daily transaction numbers. And uh, that's the case here again, uh, if you ask me, Mark. Picking a random number from a past long gone is not a stranger to the people with an urge to shill uh, BSV. Another example is when they repeatedly claimed that uh, Bitcoin, I mean the real one, BTC, uh, only has a capacity of 7 transactions per second. But the reality is Bitcoin has a capacity of over 40 million transactions per second already. So, yeah. Next, we have the same searing analysis, with Ethereum's fees listed as high and the others as low, before he shows us once more just how out of touch he is by listing the actual figures. Here, Hansen claims that Ethereum's fees are $15 and up, which is completely wrong, as the current gas fee is actually around $0.64 cents and hasn't been $15 since May 2022. Whether this is enough to shift it from his arbitrary high bracket into something else is obviously totally unknowable. Next, he's on to block times and manages to bring himself to use actual data, which puts BSV in third place, before moving on to energy efficiency, which he tags both Algorand and BSV as being high, and Ethereum, of course, as low. This is despite Ethereum's proof-of-stake consensus mechanism being, by some estimates, 99% more efficient than the proof-of-work mining that BSV engages in. Again, we know the reason behind this particular error. Next, we're on to an interesting category, professional transaction processes. Arthur, what do you think this means? Is it accurate? And does it matter? First of all, those are simply miners, Mark. You have to know the BSV network consists of a pretty bloated blockchain of uh, currently 8.25 terabyte, as they are pumping arbitrary data in, the, in their blockchain. Satoshi Nakamoto, however, was strongly against that, as it doesn't scale. And he said that on the, on the Bitcoin forum uh, back in the days, but that's another story. But the result of this data pumping, 99.99% junk data, as the head developer of blockchain once said, is that no node owner with a few brain cells and a regular check in his wallet wants to host the full BSV blockchain anymore. It's costly, and on top of it, the node software is perceived as buggy. What we see happen over time is that almost all of the full nodes, BSV full nodes I'm talking about, which are the nodes hosting the full blockchain, they are dropping like flies. Those full nodes are normally in use with exchanges, and data service providers and professional home users. But within BSV, the only entities that can still afford to run a node hosting the full blockchain, are mining pools. And these mining pools, like Tal, again a Kelvin Air-sponsored entity, hey, that's one of the largest of them, they present themselves as transaction processors. Well, actually, it's only Tal who does that. So on your question, is it accurate? Yes, they process transactions, but does it matter? No, not really. They thought that a cool-sounding name uh, would mark them in a separate category. But it's nonsense. It's nonsense. Hansen also crowbars in the launch date of each blockchain, purely so he can say that BSV launched in 2009. Arthur, did BSV launch in 2009? No. Before ending with another wonderfully scientific category, scalability. 
Ethereum's scalability he calls very limited despite all the improvements it's making, while interestingly, BSV's is high and Algorand's is yet to be proven. Arthur, which blockchain did the Marshall Islands choose to run its national digital currency on in 2019? That's running on the Algorand blockchain, Mark. Okay, and which blockchain was chosen by FIFA to host all its Web3 activities for the last World Cup? Algorand again, Mark. Okay, and which blockchain is filled with meaningless transactions used by companies bankrolled by its sugar daddy? Uh, could that be BSV? Yeah, that's BSV, Mark. Thank you, just checking, thank you. <laughs> if this is the kind of analysis that Hansen has been doing for his rival projects, then it's no surprise the result of his Craig Wright report is obvious. Uh-huh. Wright has been his usual active self on Twitter this month, claiming, among other things, that we're in for a bucket load of Satoshi proof. Going forward, and in cases, I will not be hiding or protecting anything related to my past. If you wanted to know the story of Bitcoin, well, careful what you wish for. Arthur, so far in Wright's cases, we've had a version of Bitcoin's history whose only evidence to back it up is claims from friends, family, close associates, or those with financial ties to Enchain that are totally unproven. What do you think this means we're in for next? Uh, you mean how low can we go with this? <laughs> I mean, yeah. In the early days of his uh, Satoshi roleplay that started in 2014, Craig pretended that he could sign one of the addresses that he supposedly owned but he never showed it in a satisfactory way, not to the ATO and not to others. Uh, remember 2016, the failed signing sessions. So yeah, he knows that he can't sign anything. So he also knows that he cannot go that route anymore. And with a mind boggling list of excuses, uh, the latest ones being that signing doesn't prove identity and that he also stomped on the hard drive with the private keys. <laughs> he then turned to a massive list of uh, forgeries, especially around 2019. Those forgeries failed, as we all know, <laughs> hold <or> not, <coughs> in Norway, KPMG report. So Craig has only one desperate effort left, which are the eyewitnesses that can pledge for him that he is Satoshi. Well, that box of Pandora has been opened for a bit in the Hoddlenot case in Norway again. And since none of those, was it three, four, five eyewitnesses, whatever it was, uh, who made an appearance in Oslo, had any physical evidence. And top of it, they all declared that they only became aware of Craig's Satoshiness in 2014 or later. Hmm. Yeah, mind you, that's when Craig started with his uh, Fektoshi nonsense. So literally no one was very impressed with these eyewitnesses. Well, maybe the BSV camp for a little bit, but the Norwegian judge in that case uh, couldn't have been more clear in her final judgment that we saw last year, October. Yeah, you might remember that she said uh, the court points out that the evidence brought in the case is not suitable to change its prevailing opinion that Craig Wright is not Satoshi Nakamoto. Mm -hmm. So will we go see more of the same, more eyewitnesses that have nothing interesting to tell and will have no physical evidence again, unless Craig hands them a few of his infamous sloppy forgeries again? So yeah, time will tell, Mark. Something else important happened on Twitter this month. Craig Wright was officially recognised as the creator of Bitcoin. Or not. The hilarity started when Metanet, the bunch of desperados that run BSV's media operations, including his paid-for Slack group, posted on Twitter that Wright is now known as the creator of Bitcoin on Twitter. One down, many more to go, with a blue tick of approval. Yes, Craig Wright's Twitter account, replete with creator of Bitcoin in his bio, was verified by Twitter on January 9th. 
Arthur, time to pack up. It's all over, isn't it? It's over, Mark. Mm-hmm. After Columbia awarding Craig Wright the Satoshi Nakamoto certificate, the Copyright Office of the United States uh, registering Craig's Bitcoin's copyright claim and blowing Hodlnot away in Norway with 71 documents that substantiate that Craig Wright is Satoshi Nakamoto, this is the final blow to our podcast, Mark. <laughs> Thanks for having me, but I'm out. I'm done. I will start a new life in Portugal or Kenya or Brazil. <laughs> and good luck overhauling this podcast to a BSV-friendly platform, Mark. <laughs> oh, the sarcasm. I can feel it dripping through the microphone. Yeah, absolutely. Wright posted about the news on his Slack group, where he boasted, I have finally been granted a blue tick in Twitter, as if Twitter had conducted exhaustive research and agreed that he's worthy of it, rather than the truth, which is that Calvinair has finally handed over his direct debit details. Eleven paid-up sycophants in his group responded with a rash of emojis, no doubt he loves that, before Wright clarified, as creator of Bitcoin, because it seems the gravity of the occasion hadn't broken through. This clarification was met with only five sunglasses emojis, so perhaps it wasn't worth the effort. In the comments on Slack, Wright was congratulated for getting Calvin Eyre to subscribe to Twitter Blue, before Metanet took the good news to Twitter, where it was met with a less enthusiastic response. The first respondent to the news asked, Does he have to prove what's in his bio to get the blue check? Huge if so, but I don't think that's the case. The response to this from Metanet was that Twitter reads and checks bios before granting the blue tick. This, of course, is completely incorrect. Anyone who meets some very basic criteria can get a blue tick, along with their £8 a month payments, of course, and the best that BSV can cling to is that these accounts must include no signs of being misleading or deceptive. This new low was so basement level that even the most brainwashed BSV supporters were questioning it, something that, as we know, is illegal in most BSV circles. One said, this doesn't mean anything significant. He got verified on Twitter as Craig Wright. That's it. Metanet tried to defend itself, saying that the term creator of Bitcoin had also been verified, which was met by the very sensible response, you think they investigated whether Craig Wright is a husband or not? Of course not. This was met by the suggestion, maybe they did, and a request to Elon Musk to explain the blue tick verification procedure. When another critic said he could also have put himself as creator of the universe, nothing to do with a blue check, Calvin Eyre leapt into the fray to say, except just looking at his patent portfolio makes it impossible he is not Satoshi, which is the verbal equivalent of taking a photograph of a knife to a gunfight. Arthur, I believe you got a mention in this discussion too. Yeah, I noticed that, Mark. Someone on Twitter suggested I should now get a blue check uh, also, and Craig responds that will likely lead to fraud charges on me as well. But does he mean here that I will be charged for fraud anyway, and this blue check will uh, come on top of it? Or does he mean that he will likely sue me for fraud if I get a Twitter blue check? I have no idea. But I'm not taking it very seriously with this guy anyway, so let's see. The BSV Reddit group was equally as overjoyed with the news, with one poster pointing to a tweet bragging that even Twitter verifies CS Wright as the creator of Bitcoin, and claiming, of course, that this is evidence that he is Satoshi. Another respondent couldn't wait to agree, adding, exactly, it's all about identity verification, moving coins do not verify identity. 
Of course, it's blindingly obvious to anyone with half a brain that this kind of paid verification is about as legitimate as a Sam Bankman-Fried apology and in no way endorses Craig Wright as Satoshi Nakamoto. In fact, Arthur, I think this might be the best barometer we've had yet of just how indoctrinated some of these BSV crowd are. Anyone who really thinks Twitter has just confirmed that Craig Wright is Satoshi Nakamoto is just past saving now, aren't they? Yeah, of course, most of them were beyond saving long before this blue check incident uh, anyway. But yeah, this confirms it once more. I mean, Twitter states that only profiles with uh, a real profile photo as an avatar can get a blue check. But I have seen numerous accounts with a meme or a cartoon or a drawing as a profile photo. And they all have a blue check mark only because they paid the monthly fee for it. So if you ask me, there is hardly any due diligence uh, with the Twitter blue check uh, to the level that Twitter states there is uh, being performed. Now, I think Elon's desperate for money and he's probably cut the support staff so much that there's one person looking into it each time. Let's not forget, too, that Craig Wright and Calvin Ayer have both called out on several occasions, even at trial as far as Craig Wright is concerned, that proof of social media is simply not to be trusted. Until, of course, you want it to work in your favour. Turning our attention back to BSV, and hot on the heels of Bitfinex delisting BSV last month, which led to the mother of all short squeezes, <clears throat> came the news that trading platform Robinhood was delisting BSV. Robinhood didn't go into the reasons behind their decision to remove the coin, which fell 11% as a result, saying only that it had decided to delist after the latest review of its crypto offering. This, of course, opened up the conspiracy theory well and let all the craziness come crawling out once more. We had talk of crypto politics, the famous exchange cartel, of which Robinhood had never previously been a member, and anti-right sentiment, as if a publicly listed company is making business decisions based on not liking someone. We also had suggestions that Robinhood is scared of what the real Bitcoin can do, which makes no fucking sense whatsoever, and a nice story that it was a coordinated attack on BSV, which they do to allow the price to raise before shorting it, manipulating the price and stealing more money. The perpetrator of this crime on common sense ended with the theory that the vast majority of BSV holders now believe that it's just a matter of time before the truth comes out and the price explodes so very few people are selling. Calvin Ayer swanned into the argument to call Robinhood morons in history what, before promoting his new pet project Rock Wallet as an alternative. Craig Wright himself pitched in to argue that Robinhood are about gambling, they do not want Bitcoin while another poster claimed that Robinhood don't want people to get rich like they did with BTC. This, incidentally, was Kurt Vucker Jr.'s pet theory behind the delisting by Bitfinex, and makes as much sense as washing your dishes in a cement mixer. One joker even thought that the delisting was Robinhood posturing in anticipation of either bankruptcy or investigation, while someone in the BSV Reddit group threw up an absolute doozy. Arthur, you might want to fix yourself a stiff drink for this one. Here we go. My intuition and thinking says to me this is American top oligarchs and the deep state preventing their population from getting what is going to become the most valuable digital asset, 
if not the most valuable asset in the world, by cutting them off from obtaining it, tricking them into selling it if they got it through chain splits, by distracting them with worthless shitcoins which have zero future and zero true value, preventing their population of ever knowing this, while sucking their money out through pushing in their faces the propaganda natives of the BTC plus crypto through their parrots on social media, and media is doing their job also. They are all paid to follow the narratives and shifts in the narrative when it's the right time. Arthur, I'd like a one-sentence response to that, please. <laughs> please, can I have the number of his dealer? Because I want what this guy is smoking. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I love that. The moment I go mention deep state, I was hooked. I was in. Love it. Yeah, 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 yeah. All these conspiracy theories were instantly undermined when another Reddit user responded... Robinhood informed me that they stopped support due to security concerns over the network's stability. I was informed that these concerns stem from the empty block mining that takes place on the chain. Oh, yeah, it makes sense, I suppose. Damn. But wait, this introduction of reality could not go unchallenged. Sounds like Robinhood's support is very ignorant of things in the Bitcoin space and just repeating core narratives from censored forums. God bless them. While many in the crypto world celebrated the move as another sign that BSV was headed for the shitcoin dumpster in which it deserves to fester, the reaction from the BSV community was, unsurprisingly, positive. Anyone who knows anything about BSV knows that its leadership has been critical of any and all exchanges, right at the time when it's being delisted from them, so another one kicking the coin off its platform was a cause for celebration. Driveway dweller Joshua Hensley equated it to tripping over a rock and getting up and carrying on, but then seemed to go all sensible for a few minutes. One thing I'm slightly annoyed at is that a lot of people are trying to spin this as a good thing. In this environment where we're at, where liquidity is the primary problem, I don't know how you spin this as a good thing. Because they've been conditioned, Joshua, it's called gaslighting. There is no bad news, only good news. How can you not know this? Some users, not satisfied with Robinhood doing what it wanted with its own platform, demanded action. Can Craig do something about this? Craig needs to sue Robinhood, and fast. They need to be destroyed. The demands for a lawsuit didn't end there. Others should sue them too. There is also BSV claims which dealing with D-list attacks in the UK jurisdiction. Arthur, these people just don't seem to be able to think more than two steps ahead. They really think that Robinhood can be sued and destroyed by Craig Wright because they have taken a business decision. I'm not sure whether we're talking stupidity or mental illness here. Yeah, you know, Mark. Craig gathered a few handfuls of fans and followers around him that think exactly like him, that a lawsuit solves everything. And when Craig tells them that they can go to a Tesla dealer and request a Tesla car at half the price, and when they don't get it, they can threaten to sue the dealer, there will be many fans that will happily believe him. So these people are just simply disconnected from this point in time and space, if you ask me. Robin Hood, naturally, came in for some stick, with many preaching market manipulation and claiming that the price crashed because the company dumped its alleged holdings of 170,000 BSV at the moment of the announcement. This, of course, ignores the fact that with yet another off-ramp gone, holders were probably just desperate to cash out while they could. 
CoinGeek, which has only mentioned the BSV delisting insofar as quoting Hensley's video, has supported Robinhood in the past, with its cabal of fictional writers actually backing the exchange during the GameStop furore, saying that as a private company, Robinhood could do what it wanted with the assets it lists, much like those exchanges that Craig Wright is suing because they delisted BSV, but anyway. CoinGeek also supported Robinhood's rollout of a crypto wallet early last year, saying that as one of the largest platforms to offer BSV to its users, Robinhood will certainly help with exposure and the opening of minds to what's possible on Bitcoin SV and the original promise of Bitcoin as peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash. Indeed, Robinhood did open customers' eyes to BSV by showing them just how unreliable its tin pot network really is. Robinhood's decision to delist to BSV leaves only two recognised off-ramps, OKX and Bittrex, but Arthur, what are the odds that both of these platforms are still hosting BSV by the end of the year? Oh, yeah, it's hard to predict, but I think the, 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 the delistings will uh, continue because there is a plethora of reasons why exchanges will not list uh, BSV. They will not start listing it or they will delist it uh, in the upcoming uh, period. Let me summarize them for you uh, and for the listeners. For example, we have the costs of running a BSV full node. It's unaffordable. Also, there are hardly any customers that trade uh, BSV. That group is diminishing. It's not growing. So there's hardly any liquidity and there's also no OTC market. But especially what is important for exchanges, I think, is that they don't want to get involved in a freeze and seize and reassignment of BSV tokens uh, actions when that is uh, suddenly dropping on their head. We also saw that happen uh, last year. Uh, they can become victim of a 51% attack. We have also seen that transactions are getting stuck in the mempool because of an empty blocks miners. Now that is a burden also for exchanges. And what I think is also a burden for exchanges, I mean, look at their support department. They have to handle customers who are complaining about the hundreds of confirmations that are needed to somewhat reliably uh, support an unstable and insecure network like BSV. But by the way, Mark, the latest news is, is that just before this recording, BSV made a new all-time low in uh, BTC, and that low was uh, 0.001591. And this was the first time ever since November 2018 when BSV launched that BSV hit that uh, that handle. Hmm. Yeah, I was uh, quite happy. Yeah, that is sound weird, but uh, I always like it when, uh, when BSV is uh, going into the direction that I always predicted that is going it made a new all-time low since they launched in november 2018 i mean it's oddly impressive isn't it to be that bad at something <laughs> yeah it takes a concerted effort to perform that badly oh yeah absolutely to rub salt in the wounds on the day that robin had made its announcement which blockchain should partner with amazon but avalanche the blockchain created by emin gunsira a vowed enemy of craig wright and which was at the center of the kyle roche video scandal last year it seems then that rather than dying a death as many bsv as anticipated avalanche has instead captured the attention of the world's biggest shop and made a nice deal with them something that calvin Eyre and all the other conspiracy cheerleaders might want to spend a little more time focusing on 
That's everything for this month's update. Don't forget, you can listen to our bonus episode on the Linwright versus Ira Kleiman case and all our other bonus episodes going back to 2021, either through our website or by signing up as a paid member of the Dr. Bitcoin Supporters Club, with all contributions going to the running costs of the podcast. You can currently enjoy a free seven-day trial if you sign up through Patreon, allowing you to sample our goodies before you take the plunge. Just head to drbitcoinpod.com, that's drbitcoinpod.com, for all the information on how to do that. Next month's bonus episode is still supposed to be the background to the Ramona Ang versus Ira Kleiman case, but with the judgment of Wright's appeal to dismiss the case against the developers expected any day now, this may be put back. We'll just have to wait and see on that one. We're also working on an investigation into BSV's use of the Lightning Sharks marketing company to promote BSV on social media, which promises to be a very interesting piece indeed. Arthur, as usual, it was a pleasure talking with you. Oh, the pleasure was all mine again, Mark. And we'll do it all again next month. Cheers, Mark. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto. If you enjoyed what you heard, we'd really appreciate a rating or even a quick review on your platform of choice in order to get this out to as many people as possible. For early access to episodes and exclusive bonus content, please consider becoming a supporter through Patreon or Anchor. See the details in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on your chosen platform in order to get new episodes the moment they drop. And if you'd like to follow us on Twitter for podcast announcements and other nonsense, you'll find us at DrBitcoinPod. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll speak to you again soon. You've been listening to Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto. Written by Mark Hunter, with additional material by Arthur Van Pelt. Editing and production by Mark Hunter. This has been a Contented Media Production.